0: And today is the 18th of May 2021, and this is the City of Iowa City work session. And welcome everybody. We want to get us started with um, inviting our City Manager, Jeff Fruin, to talk about the American Rescue Plan funding and associated process. So, welcome, Jeff.
1: Good evening or good afternoon. Uh, Nice to see you also on uh, March 4th, uh, we gave you an introduction to the American Rescue Plan. Um, At that time, uh, we did not have the city's final allocation of funds. Uh, We also did not have uh, the rules yet from the US Treasury. Uh, Since that time, uh, the final allocations for uh, entitlement cities uh, have come out and uh, the rules have also been uh, published as well the inter- interim rules from the US Treasury so we've spent the last uh, week or so going through those rules and uh, trying to learn the ins and outs of those um, there are still a, a significant number of questions but we have a much better idea uh, when it comes to use of the funds and that's really what we wanted to to focus on tonight but but before we jump into that I um, uh, I again want to just uh, urge the council to to really focus on um, thinking about your, your guiding principles or your values first and then focusing on process uh, before you get into the uh, really broad range of uses that, that you have, uh, that, that you will have when it comes to determining how to spend these funds. Uh, but we did feel it was important for you to have an overview so you can uh, kind of, um, understand what those, what those boundaries may be. So that's the intent of tonight. Uh, Rachel is going to uh, walk you through um, uh, the updates that we have and an overview of the rules. And then we're gonna kind of end um, back at that process and guiding principle um, uh, point and allow you to take the, take the discussion from there. So with that, I'll turn it over to Rachel Kilberg for the presentation.
2: All right, thank you Jeff good evening man city council i'm going to share my screen here. Can I get a thumbs up if we're seeing what you should be seeing. Yes, okay awesome. All right, um. So as Jeff mentioned, uh, the U.S. Treasury uh, released their interim final rule on May 9th. Um, I do want to note that it was the interim final rule. So um, we're still waiting on some clarification uh, in some areas, and um, they are accepting comments and questions on the interim final rule through the middle of July. So um, any there may be additional changes that will be coming, um, and we can expect that the final, final rule, if you will, by, uh, maybe early, early to mid August. But my goal today is really just to give you a high level overview, um, not get into all the details, but just set you up with a baseline of knowledge of what's in this guidance. Um, so you can advance your planning process, um, and set you up to, to establish those guiding principles that Jeff talked about. Um, so this is, uh, just, just to review what's in the American Rescue Plan. So um, this is kind of an overview of everything that's in there, all the, the different types of uh, programs and re- various relief dollars that will hopefully be trickling down to localities and our residents. Um, but we're focusing on this, um, this segment, the this 17.6% segment today, which is that fiscal relief, those entitlement funds that are going to cities and localities. Uh, so with, with the Treasury releasing their guidance, uh, they also uh, published final allocations. So this is um, just a summary, again, to remind you of some of the, the funding that will be flowing into our area. So um, the state of Iowa will be receiving $1.4 billion. Johnson County will be receiving $29.3 million. Iowa, City, Iowa City's final amount came in at $18.3 uh, and then Coralville and North Liberty uh, have their estimates, they are around three million. Um, they've They've stayed the same. they're estimated at the same amount that you saw last uh, work session. So then I want to cover kind of the timing and some of the spending deadlines here. So the funding, if you'll recall, is going to be delivered in two tranches, and this is very intentional by the Treasury. So uh, we'll expect to receive about 50 percent, hopefully here within May, and then the remaining 50 percent about um, a year after that. Um, like I said, this was very intentional by the Treasury um, because they want to recognize that there are some immediate needs that are going to need to be plugged uh, pretty quickly, but they'll also understand that our circumstances are going to change. Uh, what, what the circumstances are now as to what they were a year ago, six months ago, even a month ago um, are, are very different and they'll continue to change. Um, so recognizing that we may not know what, what our needs are fully a year from now. Um, And then also the Treasury does expect that uh, recipients of these funds that local governments are being very deliberate in our planning um, and in our planning stage about how we're going to prioritize and how we're going to use these funds. There are some exceptions, but on the whole, um, the guidance is is pretty clear that these funds should be used for prospective uses so pre pandemic circumstances can be considered when we're talking about how we might want to use these funds, but on a the whole, they should really be forward looking uses. And then there's two kind of big deadlines outlined in uh, the guidance. So the first is. Um, by the end of 2024, that is when all funds should be obligated. So the federal government's definition of this basically means that at a minimum, the project should have a contract or uh, a signed agreement in place for the use of funds. Um, and then the second deadline is um, the the performance period for a project using these funds would be December 31 of 2026. So essentially by 2027, um, Pro, the Treasury expects that that would be um, enough time for us to wrap up any projects uh, that, that are using these funds. Okay. And then I just want to kind of go ahead and dive right in um, to just a high-level overview of, of what's in the guidance. So. Um, they do provide uh, some non-inclusive lists of types of uses that would be considered eligible. And I might mention some of those today as we go along. Um, But overall, uh, eligible uses would fall into these four primary categories. So responding to the COVID-19 public health emergency or negative economic impacts caused by the pandemic or made worse by the pandemic. The second category is premium pay for eligible workers who are performing who were or are performing essential work. The third category is replacing lost governmental revenue or restoring government service levels to what they were pre-pandemic. And then the final category is necessary investments in water, sewer, and broadband infrastructure. So I'll go into each of these just just a little bit further. So that first category here, um, I have two slides to cover it because how I think about this one is really kind of two eligible use pieces. We have negative pub- addressing negative public health impacts and negative economic impacts. So on this slide, I, w- I wanna cover uh, the public health impacts uh, use. And the US Treasury would consider um, a public health use eligible uh, for use of these funds if they respond to the pandemic or the virus itself or if they are responding to a harmful public health consequence resulting from or that was made worse by the pandemic. So, COVID 19 mitigation and prevention um, would be eligible uses. And then, other areas of public health uh, that could have suffered from the event, such as these examples were provided specifically in the guidance by the Treasury, behavioral health care, mental health, substance misuse, and domestic violence services. Um, and then finally, there, the Treasury does address that there would be kind of some broader latitude to address disparities in public health outcomes that were caused or exacerbated by, by the pandemic. So especially among disadvantaged or overburdened populations, the eligibility of uses uh, gets a little broader. They, they really wanted to be very intentional in recognizing that the role of pre-existing social vulnerabilities um, played a big big part in driving disparate outcomes, so they, they want to be sure that these funds can be used to address uh, those disparities. Uh, so some of these broader uses, they could include kind of environmental causes that maybe could have worsened pre-existing conditions or impacted health and well-being, uh, such as living in an environment that has mold or poor ventilation, lead paint, Um or it could could be a use that's kind of as broad as funding um, public benefit navigators or investing in a community health facility. So um, really a broad spectrum of the type of uses you could use uh, when they are prioritizing those those populations that have been uh, disproportionately impacted. In this section, the U.S. Treasury does encourage that we prioritize households, businesses and nonprofits that were most disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 or any of the effects of the pandemic that that worsened um, its impact. So then the second half of that first category is the economic impact uses. So this is really kind of the same test as as it is for public health harms. You have to first identify whether uh, economic harm exists. And then if you have to identify if that harm was caused by or made worse by the pandemic, and then clearly be able to make that connection between the public harm and how the use of funds are going to address it. So if you've determined that a harm exists, then where that harm exists, you, can, you have a very broad latitude again of what you can use it for. Um, again, the treasury provides a non-inclusive list of, of some of these uses, uh, examples would be assistance to households, maybe things like food assistance, legal aid to prevent evictions, job training for unemployed workers, um, assistance to businesses uh, and nonprofits who maybe are financially struggling from the pandemic and not able to to operate at the level of service uh, that they usually do, um, or assistance to impacted industries. So some of the things, some of the, the industries that they specifically call out in their guidance is, uh, travel, tourism, and hospitality. Um, and, and you could use the funds to kind of drive attraction or help those, those businesses if they're struggling. So the treasury does allow us then also to, again, um, assume kind of a broader eligibility, eligibility when the funds are used, um, for or in pop, in areas of the community and with populations who have been hardest hit. So, if they are low income, minority, or an otherwise disadvantaged um, population, it's going to be considered uh, more reasonable by us for the uh, for us by the Treasury to to make that connection that uh, that between our use of funds and the pandemic's um, impact on the economic harm. So, the the encouraged uses by the U.S. Treasury here. Um, for households, they they specifically call out prioritizing um, BIPOC, women, low-income populations. For businesses, they encourage um, prioritizing the smallest businesses, maybe those that have difficulty accessing credit, uh, those who have had substantial declines in revenue have been the hardest hit by unemployment. Um, and for nonprofits, again, encourage using, uh, using the funds to prioritize those nonprofits that were serving disadvantaged communities uh, and really had to cut their service levels. Okay, and then the second category is premium pay for eligible workers performing essential work. So the guidance defines what eligible workers and essential work means. so an eligible worker would be a worker who was needed to maintain continuity of operations of essential critical infrastructure sectors or additional sectors that were deemed critical to protect health and well-being of residents um, if it's designated by a state or local government. And then the definition of essential work is work involving regular in-person interactions or regular physical handling of items that were also handled by others. So these are kind of the two tests to determine if um, a worker would be eligible for premium pay. Uh, so so if, if the worker does meet that test, then as the recipient of the funds, we could use it in how we understand the rules today is we could use it in two ways. We could one provide that direct premium pay to city staff if they're eligible workers or we can provide grants to other employers or other businesses who have eligible workers. We, The way we understand the rules now is that we cannot provide direct premium pay to um, em- employees of other employers uh, ourselves. It, w- it would have to go through their employer. Um, so, how this would work, um, without getting into too many details, is basically pay up to thirteen dollars an hour on top of their base wages. The Treasury does have some kind of maximums built in, just to make sure that um, that premium pay would be going to really those lowest income and lowest wage earning workers. Um, and there's, there's they provide a couple of examples. I pulled out a few here: health healthcare staff, food production, restaurant workers janitors and sanitation workers, transit truck drivers, um, those, those type of industry sectors, those type of that nature of work. Um, and then the treasury really encourages again, prior prioritizing low income, uh, eligible workers. So those earning low wages, um, and they also encourage that we provide retrospective pit or If if this is a use of fund that premium pay is applied retrospectively um, for work that has already been completed, they want to recognize that there have been some frontline workers um, who have have been doing work that they have not been adequately compensated for up to this point our third category here uh, is one that, that we're really interested in seeking some kind of additional clarification and guidance on um, with the final rule. Um, but our current understanding is that uh, we, could, we could use these funds for the provision of government services to the extent of the reduction in general revenue relative to the last full fiscal year prior to the pandemic. So that last full fiscal year would essentially be fiscal year 2019. Uh, that that would that started on June 30th, 2019. That would be considered our last full fiscal year, and the guidance provides some really detailed um, methodology for how you, how you would calculate that revenue loss, um, and and then beyond that, it, we could use it to kind of kind of restore service levels or staffing levels um, back up to, to what it was pre-pandemic. Specifically in eligible use maybe would be any kind of service or project, uh, equipment replacement or a facility improvement that was planned prior to the pandemic but paused or delayed because of it. So, um, if it if if it's a use that if it's a government use that wouldn't be eligible um, under any other category, such as the economic impact uh, category, then it it would remain ineligible unless um, it was previously planned. Essentially, I do want to call out that uh, the guidance does identify a couple of of areas where. Use of funds towards government service levels would not be eligible, and revenue replacement would not be eligible. So, uh, as the rules are written currently, um, replacing lost revenue for utilities is not included um, as eligible revenue replacement. So then our fourth and final category here is necessary investments in water, sewer, and broadband infrastructure. So the infrastructure that the Treasury is really focused on uh, in this legislation and in the guidance is just in, in these three areas. So necessary investments um, is is what they're defining for, for these uses. And I have them listed and I'll go through them here for both the water and the broadband. So for our water, stormwater, wastewater, sewer projects, um, those, they would be eligible under this use if they would provide an adequate minimum level of service that meets applicable health-based standards, taking into account resiliency, resilience or climate change. So this could be capital improvements, um, projects supporting treatment management, distribution, uh, or projects addressing climate change. So uh, recognizing if if we have infrastructure that would not be able to provide minimum service levels uh, in the case of a more frequent or more severe uh, weather events, um, th- those would be projects that would be eligible under, under this use. So... And the guidance the U.S. Treasury encourages that um, uses under the water infrastructure piece uh, focus on resiliency, um, again, against kind of natural disasters, increased severe weather events, green infrastructure, and they also specifically call out uh, replacing lead service lines. And then the second part of this is broadband. So... um, Their definition of a necessary investment in broadband would be one that establishes or improves service to underserved populations to reach an adequate level for work or school and would be unlikely to be done privately. So their definition for an underserved population is an area that has, that does not have a minimum of 25 megabits per second upload speed and, I'm sorry, download speed and three upload speed and their definition for an adequate service level is a symmetrical 100 upload 100 download speeds. Um, And they they encourage that uh, uses under this this category would prioritize those last mile connections uh, where where you kind of see some of that bandwidth some of those bandwidth issues Um, as well as fiber optic infrastructure where it's feasible. And they also encourage that any of these projects take affordability into consideration. um, They've also noted that in addition uh, to some of this broadband infrastructure uh, eligible uses under uh, the economic harm use, and economic disparities um, kind of subcategory. You you would be able to do things like provide assistance for internet access to households or businesses, or to provide digital literacy training. Just just kind of to to show how some of these different uses can overlap. So. Uh, That's kind of the four uses, and now what I want to do is just um, kind of review each of those uh, and outline the U.S. Treasuries, how they're encouraging use, and how they recommend uh, you assess whether your um, intended use would be eligible. So first, for public health and economic impacts, um, really the first step is you have to identify if there has been a harmful effect caused by or exacerbated by the pandemic. And then you need to demonstrate how, make that direct connection, how will this use of funds address that harmful effect? Um, In addition to that, you should also be assessing uh, if there's a disproportionate impact of that effect on any certain population or sector um, and how your service project or program could address those um, disproportionate effects um, or any, any kind of compounding effects that that made any uh, systemic barriers or systemic um, disparities worse. So on the second category for premium pay, their test is to first identify: does the worker meet that essential work and eligible worker definition? If they do, then they incur the Treasury encourages that um, recipients are prioritizing this use towards the lowest income and low wage workers, those frontline workers, um, and that you consider applying retrospective pay where it would be feasible in addition to any kind of present or, or future pay. The third category for government services and revenue loss. Like I mentioned, um, the guidance pretty clearly lays out what that calculation is to do that. Um, and that's how you would determine what, what revenue loss, um, you could you could collect for, and then compa- you you would also need to be sure to compare any kind of service project or staff reductions to pre-pandemic levels. So again, was this planned for prior to the pandemic, and we didn't go forward with it because of we took fiscal austerity measures, or or for another reason. And then finally. Um, For that water sewer and broadband infrastructure category for broadband, you need to determine if the project meets that 25 three kind of underserved um, definition, and you need to be able to demonstrate that the investment would provide adequate minimum service levels and um, also be unlikely to be made by a, a private source. And then for water uh, storm and sewer projects you would need to determine if the project is necessary to maintain minimum health-based standards and in making that assessment uh, you can consider resiliency or climate change so in addition to those four categories um another use we can we can do with these funds is transfer them to a, another uh, local government, to a special purpose unit of government, um, a private nonprofit, and in the guidance they also clarify that you could also transfer to a private entity um, as long as it's helping you to fulfill an eligible use. So the the, the transfers still must uh, abide by all the treasury guidance. They still must be used for qualifying eligible use. Um, we would still be responsible regardless of whether we transferred it or not. The responsibility is still on us to um, be transparent about posting what the use is, to be reporting on it, uh, to be continually assessing the use. And finally, you cannot transfer the use to another entity to make the funds become an eligible use. So if if there's a use of funds that wouldn't be eligible here, but it would be in say coralville we couldn't transfer it to them um just to make it an eligible use because it wouldn't be for the direct recipient which is iowa city and then finally um that that was kind of an overview of of what we could use the funds for and the guidance also outlines um explicitly some uses that would not be considered eligible. So ineligible uses. So those would include federal matching requirements. So we could not use these funds as federal match for a grant or or another project. Um, The premium pay cannot be used under those definitions. Telework would not qualify as being eligible for premium pay. You cannot use these to contribute to a pension fund You cannot use these funds for any infrastructure that's not directly addressed. So of course they call out those kind of three categories, water, sewer, and broadband. Um, It's possible that there's a case made for other infrastructure if it's directly tied to mitigating the pandemic or to responding to an economic or public health impact caused by the pandemic. But otherwise these funds are really not um, infrastructure funds these funds uh, should not be used for any contributions to reserve funds, rainy day funds, um, not for debt payments or issuance of new debt. And again, just just calling out that uh, when thinking about replacing lost governmental revenue, utilities is not and is excluded from that. So that would not be an eligible use. So then I just want to. Um, kind of remind you of the process that was discussed last time. This was our recommended process. And we still think this is a good path forward. Um, hopeful that we can kick off this first stage of establishing guiding principles tonight so that um, that helps us navigate through these these second phases of coordinating with other local governments and starting to provide opportunities for public input. Uh, so in light of that, I, I just wanted to bring up again those draft guiding principles that we shared with you last time. Um, in looking at these and comparing them to the guidance that the Treasury released, uh, they're they're actually very much in alignment with the guidance and the language that they're using, so that's positive. Um, but we'd really be interested uh, in hearing kind of just some general counsel discussion on each of, the, each of these principles again, just to to help shape that path forward as as we move along in this process. So with that, I I guess I can go ahead and turn it back to the mayor.
0: Thank you, Rachel, for leading us through through your presentation. Lots of information there, great information. Uh, We've been waiting for the rules and um, we got them. We know that it may not be the final rules that have come out, but this is a great starting point from where we were. So I'll just open it up to council just to chime in, and if you have questions for Rachel, please feel free to ask them now.
3: Rachel, I just want to ask you: When you say low income, did they said like certain percent of the area median income, or just they just said low income?
2: Yeah, they uh, they didn't um, they didn't provide any specific. Uh, percentage of income they they really just clarified low income um, and the lowest income in some
4: cases thank you rachel for your presentation because initially when i looked at some of the basic rules that uh, were sent to us the other day uh, they were kind of to be honest clear as mud to me i wasn't quite sure how it could be applied or, or how well the process would be, but uh, you even said that there are still some significant questions, which I think there are, but I think as the process goes along, um, your presentation will be helpful, and talking as a group will be helpful to clarify those. Thank you.
2: All right, I can bring those principles back up for you if you'd
4: like. That would
5: be helpful. Thank you.
6: So,
1: if I may jump in while while these are being brought back up, what I think is important for this this discussion here on the principles, um, I don't necessarily think you need to wordsmith these, um, but if you can just kind of talk through them and, and make sure that that as staff we have a good understanding on. Um, you know where you stand on each of these and then and of course if we're missing something that, that's really important to you or you want something stressed in a little bit different way um, this is a good time to kind of talk through those so I, I I caution you against getting too focused on the individual words we can we can polish this up and represent it to you for kind of final adoption um, but we really just want to know if we're on the right track in, in presenting these to you and again if we're we're missing anything. These are principles that, that we would continually hold up to the public as we uh, make our funding decisions, as we have public input opportunities. So um, again, just a general discussion and any any insight would be uh, appreciated here.
5: I think that it, that it's going to be really important once the county is at a point where they're ready that we be able to cooperate and coordinate with the county because they have they, the, the, the city and the county together have an enormous amount of money. Um, and I think, as you, as you may have mentioned last time, Jeff, it would be useful to be able to go out and get public input together, avoid duplication, um, leverage funds. I mean, at least avoid duplication among these, these two funds if we can't completely avoid a duplication with what's going to be funded by the state. Um, which is another question, What, when will we know what will be funded by the state? But I just think locally, in terms of looking at Johnson County and Iowa City, that that ought to be a priority.
4: I
3: don't
4: have that, go ahead. No, Maz, um, I was just gonna, on that note, uh, Janice mentioned the state, and now we have a lot of um, state employees, and, and Rachel, maybe you could answer this. Would help from them to uh, like their their that work at the hospital, the nursing assistants, those that are lower paid would be considered lower. Would that assistance need to come from the state then? Again, so with the
2: with the ineligible use for premium pay, we we would our only course for using those funds would be for city employees who meet the definitions of eligible worker or essential work, um, we we could transfer funds to another employer. So if those employees are not already receiving premium pay through um, their employer, through the state, um, then that would become an eligible use.
3: Richard, can you bring the slide that says essential worker again? Mm-hmm. I mean like for example, essential worker, of course, the frontline line uh, hospital worker as essential worker. But uh, mostly, those workers are not low income. How are you gonna do that? Like, are you? They have to meet all uh, check all the boxes: essential worker and low income, or buyback community and low income, or just like because the one that you have it in the beginning say just like uh, you know people be I I guess I don't know if you have it like people be of color buyback community and after that or uh, you know or low income or, yeah, I don't know. They have to check all the boxes to be eligible or how this work?
2: Yeah, I, so based on our current understanding of the rules and, and there's more guidance and explanation information questions coming out every day on them, um, that that's kind of our understanding right now is that they would need to meet these two definitions. Um, we know that the treasury values, um, prioritizing the hardest hit populations. Um, but really the purpose today was just to provide you an introduction because we know there will be additional clarification coming. We know that there could be, um, some changes to the final rule. Um, we really just wanted to kind of provide you this overview so that it sets you up with at least a baseline of knowledge to, to discuss um what guiding principles you would want to maybe prioritize and figure out down the road when when the guidance is more clear um how you'd want to use these funds and and who would be eligible and what would be eligible
1: i, I think the bottom line is that you're going to have some you're probably going to have some flexibility to determine eligibility yourself if you want to explore this use um so you're gonna have to meet those definitions and i you know we can we can sort through that there's good examples at the bottom of this slide that'll give you a sense of what they're thinking but my assumption will be that the council could say we're going to extend premium pay only to those workers that were making less than 15 dollars an hour or less than whatever dollar per hour that you assign and then you're going to provide some level of 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 premium pay um, I think we're going to have that flexibility to kind of set how much premium pay and and w- w- what makes you eligible. Where, where we're not going to have flexibility is determining what types of jobs um, may qualify for this. And again, I think those examples on this slide will... Give us a pretty good a pretty good sense um, of the type of work. You know, someone that was working at City Hall when we were closed to the public is not going to meet this definition. Um, whereas, as you can see, a transit driver that was regularly interacting with the public would meet that. So there's going to be those nuances, but uh, um, I think you'll have that flexibility in determining what wage levels would be eligible for this. Should you go down that path?
3: Yeah, but I mean, like, for example, if somebody work, uh, like, at, for example, a driver. A driver, he's definitely essential worker. He interacts with everybody, uh, every day with the public. But, for example, if he gets $20 an hour, but does still make him low income if you add his family to, to you know, is that means he's not eligible? If we decide, for example, I know that the $15, you give it as example, but it's still... I'm just saying, uh, that's going to make him money. You will even do twenty dollars for him as a family of five, of a family of eight. Is still he's a low income uh, worker.
1: Yeah, yes. I think you're you're, you're probably going to be thinking about this in two different kind of categories of uses. The premium pay is just going to be based, likely on the wage that they are that they are making at their job, irrespective of their income levels at, at home uh um but you can through uh, a, a, you know the the first um rule that rachel presented provide direct assistance to households that are low income you know that's more of the uh the, the direct stimulus if you wanted to give a thousand dollars to families that that are under a a certain threshold much like the federal government did with with this bill um you would be able to do that, but that's kind of through a different section of the rules that we'd have to work through if you want to base direct assistance just on household income.
3: No, I was just talking about the premium pay for the essential worker. Uh, I'm talking about this person; he have his family and his insurance and everything. How that's gonna be determined? Yeah. Yep, those
1: are those are the sticky details that are yet to come.
7: For me, Rachel, if you can go back to the the first slide of kind of the values. Um, when I look at what was presented to us last time, and and you've got up there tonight uh, when we get back to that, as I look through these, um, I'm really impressed with what staff has put together, and um, and in and am in agreement um, with what is here to guide us as we make our decisions. I think it's, you know, always we we try to leverage outside funding if we can. I mean, if we can put in $10,000 and get 60,000 from somebody else, that helps the people in our community that much more if we can leverage our money. And because we know there's never enough money, I think it's really important that we try to avoid duplication with other relief programs. And I think it's still really unclear um, how some of that other money is going to be distributed. And so I think it's important that we don't race to make final decisions on how we're going to allocate this money till we have a better idea of uh, how the rest of that pie is going to get distributed and under what rules. you've all heard me say repeatedly over the years, maintaining the financial stability of the city is absolutely important. We won't, if we don't do that, we won't be able to give people the services they need um, going forward. I think the next two or three just really go together so well. I mean, I think we want flexibility. We don't know what all the needs in the community are going to be as we continue to go forward. Some some individuals, some segments of the economy may come back faster than others. Um, some that we think are gonna come back may not and may need, need more assistance later. And in the next one, that social infrastructure and addressing and mitigating racial inequalities, I think all of those have to be Really front and center in our minds as we think about how we're going to use that, and I'm really pleased to see that the Treasury really talking about um, trying to mitigate those disparities as we prioritize um, how we spend our money. And um, you know, the last three I think are important, and and especially you know, not starting up programs that we don't have sustainable funding for. We we really need to be looking at the at how we spend this. On one time expenses, because this is one time money. Um, So I'm really comfortable. I'm really pleased with the time and effort that staff has put in to develop these. And I think they're a great framework for us um, as we start working through more of the details of how we allocate this money.
8: I think the the um, guiding principles work pretty well. It's it's a little bit different than what I was finding and doing searches for guiding principles. They're 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 not really focused on specific uh, demographics within a community, but one can read into how one might be able to apply that, uh, you know, that that kind of approach with these principles to get at those particular groups, for example, youth, I think that's an important uh, particular demographic, uh, moving forward that that I'm interested in, at least and and I've seen on uh, guiding principles and some of these the documents I ran across. Um, It it does seem what one one thing that's kind of interesting about the the program is that it is in kind of two different parts. So we have the immediate tranche which um, what I forget the dates on it, but you know it is fairly immediate, um, and so it does seem that the way I began to see that would be that that tranche would probably go toward the direct relief part um, most lot you know most logically, uh, without wanting to get ahead of ourselves. But it does seem that that that's where that percentage of the funding would would be emphasized. Uh, but there is a second tranche and a fairly long period in which all of this could be implemented. So, you know, some of the other guiding principles, such as, you know, lasting change in the physical and social infrastructure, those sorts of things, would I think, um, which would require more time. Um, can there is the time to do that and, and to get more into kind of long-term planning? The the other thing that I found. Um, interesting and and challenging about this is, you know, this, the the rescue plan is one of three uh, federal funding programs. You know, we have, uh, in addition to the rescue plan, we have the American jobs plan, which hasn't been approved yet, but it's out there. Uh, And then the American families plan, which, you know, the estimates are that that would be $1 million with $800 million, or I'm sorry, $1 trillion and $800 billion in uh, tax credits. So you add all these up we're you know, you're talking about close to $6 trillion. uh, And there seems to be potentially uh, or certainly these programs to overlap to some degree. So how we how we integrate and and plan that is challenging because they are in different timeframes. The American jobs plan is a eight year infrastructure plan. Um, So, But nevertheless, I think we need to try to keep in mind that the fact that there there most likely will be additional large funding sources becoming available and to try to anticipate them uh, as we move forward uh, it sort of speaks to the, the du- avoiding duplication or things of that sort, so that we we have the best understanding of what funding is best applied when and with 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 what um, sources. Um, but yeah, I think as a, a starting point, this all seems like a good starting point, and it would certainly be useful to see what uh, detailed information we have now in terms of what will be eligible, what won't be eligible, and so forth.
0: For me, I think the guiding principles are, um, you know, just something good for us to kind of have as a baseline. There's a few that resonate with me and a few that don't. Um, As far as like what would be my... You know, priority here, and John just mentioned that there are three types of programs out there that'll be forthcoming. And so, a part a part of the challenge is not knowing exactly how those funds will be um, recommended for use. Um, when we're talking about not duplicating, you know, uh, other relief programs, that's number one. We don't know uh, how, some of the other relief programs and how that's going to um, impact our local community. And so that that becomes a little bit of a challenge. And I don't know the projections of when those rules will come out and when those funds will be available. But nevertheless, I do believe that leveraging outside funding and avoiding duplication with other relief programs is critical. Um, Although I do believe that there are some programs already out there that do have barriers for certain people within our community. And I think learning what those barriers are to try to figure out how can are the funds that we have help overcome some of those barriers? So um, I, I, I don't. I, I'm in full agreement about uh, potentially not duplicating uh, some of the some of the relief efforts. Um, now, if there is a relief effort that is only giving, for example, hundred dollars, uh, you know, t- for towards uh, um, some type of a relief, um, COVID relief program that may not be sufficient you know for that um, for the for the recipients it, it could be all the funds that's available uh, through that entity and so that's something that we also have to keep in mind that some programs they are helping people but it may not be sufficient funds available to really meet the needs of the people so number one is great but I think there's a little more th- things that we need to think about. Uh, Retaining flexibility to address evolving emergent community needs. I think we're going to continue to see needs that are um, rising in our community. There's a lot of nonprofits that work really hand in hand with some of our most um, Um, neediest residents, um, and I think listening to some of those concerns that we may not even anticipate uh, would be valuable for us to just keep those lines of communication open so that we can uh, maybe have some um, conversations to really meet some of those needs as well. Ensuring funding decisions um, to help mitigate racial inequalities, I think, we all know that there are some barriers um, and some inequalities uh, that has happened throughout this pandemic. And I think just making sure that we um, hear some of those, make sure that we respond to those is going to be critical and certainly that would be um, hearing from our communities as to how we can help with that. Um, limited operation, limited, limit operational investments without identifying sustainable funding sources. Um, so I, I do believe that we should, you know, ensure that whatever is sustainable. Um, but here I I do wonder, um, a little bit of, of what this totally mean. I guess I was a little confused by this one here when it, and maybe you can explain that to me.
1: Yeah, so, so really um, recognizing that this is a one-time influx of funds. So if you want to um, expand um, some type of service, and, and the easiest example may be a, a service that requires um, an employee or multiple employees to carry that out, we may be able to fund an employee's salary for two years or three years with these funds um, but there will become a time in which these grant funds aren't available. And we, we may or may not at that time, uh, be able to retain those employees to carry out that service or keep paying the nonprofit to, to keep those employees, um, uh, um, uh, paid, uh, so that they can continue that service. It's not to say that we can't, and there may be some strategic opportunities to, to do this, but, um, if we put too much in the operational side of things, uh, I'm afraid that four or five years from now, um, a lot of those gains will be erased by an inability to keep uh, the necessary funding behind those efforts.
0: Okay, now I understand, thank you so much. And um, I I would certainly agree that um, at least for these funds, absent all other funds, uh, it, for operational investments, I believe that the funds that we give should be limited. I'm not saying that we wouldn't consider you know, other things, but it really should be limited to um, the, these funds usage. And so um, that would be at least my perspective at, at this time. The other thing that I might mention, um, I would agree that our city... Financial stability is super important, is I mean, is vital for us to uh, survive. In absence of knowing all of the other opportunities that we have, $18.3 million is a lot of money. It is a lot of money, very grateful for the funds that we're being given and, and by the federal government and asked to shepherd over. But I also know the needs in our community are greater than $18.3 million. And, and that's where I think um, it's a huge number. I you know, will tread lightly on um, really looking at some of the operations of our government. Um, I, I do know that we have needs, exactly. We can use some of these funds. But... I think once we start to look at what are all the needs in our community, what are all the funds that we have through other programs, um, I I believe we're gonna find a great um, need that, again, it won't be enough money no matter which programs we're utilizing. Um, I'll be very interested in how the state utilizes their funds because we haven't, you know, we don't know what they're gonna do um, and how they're gonna support and who they're gonna support. I just believe that ensuring that individuals and households are a priority. We do have businesses that absolutely need support as well. I think we have to look at our entire community, certainly look at hearing from our community to hear what their needs are is gonna be vitally important. So these funds are uh, something that i certainly want to um have some of those listening opportunities, some of those public hearings, um, to hear what the public has to say about the funds and partnering with others within our community and even listening to what the state is gonna do so that we can partner um, in, in, in giving out these funds. I think that'd be crucially important.
3: Uh, I really, I haven't gone through each one of those. I was just asking question in general but I, I really mostly agree with what the mayor said. And in addition, uh really this time I hope you guys contact the community. You know, we need to listen from the community and and, and find out what the needs is. And not only that, you have to keep on mind what works for certain groups doesn't work for other a group. So those kind of things uh to make we have money, we need to make it act the people like easy to access the fund that we will provide. I I feel like the city, when you come up with rules, either to conduct the council on those rules or seeking opportunity from the people, from certain community to see what works for them best, what doesn't. Those two things, since this is from the city and we are the one who set up the rules, as long as we're following the guidelines, I think we can make it very easy for our community to access it.
5: So further to what the mayor and Mayor Potem Tem said, um, I have a question about uh, uh, eligibility, and that and that is, you know, we we talked about nonprofits um, that in that community there's a a portion of the nonprofit community on which a lot of people actually depend, uh, and certain people in the BIPOC community particularly depend on some of the churches. It seems that you know we're, there, there's also, of course, separation between church and state, but I'm aware that that there, there are many in the BIPOC community really have leaned on the churches, on their churches. Some of their churches have closed because since there's less money, since there's less there's less funds to, to go around, less funds to, to give, the, some of those institutions are no longer there, those support institutions. And that's where people go. So I guess my question is, within this framework in general, and within the framework of talking about Discussing transferring funds is our, our, is it possible um, in, in at least in certain certain circumstances because as Mayor Pro Temp said different communities go to different institutions and approach things differently is it possible to include um, some of the some of the churches in this or is that a non-starter.
2: I can give that a shot. Um, So churches weren't explicitly mentioned, but um, our our transfer of funds, um, I see it as to the, the guidance could happen two ways. It's either one to provide assistance to another entity that is providing a service that we deem is critical to addressing an economic or public health impact. Um, Or what I think you're getting to to is more of transferring the funds over to administer some sort of service or program that would address an eligible economic or public health use. And I think that um, the the Treasury was pretty intentional in trying to to make that transfer ability pretty broad. And I, I believe that that would be an
6: eligible use. Thank you.
4: I think another thing that we have to keep in mind are when we're looking at at groups of uh, individuals is uh, those folks such as the immigrants and refugees that perhaps hadn't bought because they weren't Receiving unemployment or those kinds of things from federal government assistance, and and they still do need some uh, assistance. As most of them, uh, possibly, were disproportionately impacted by COVID, and I think uh, this is one thing that we need to look at as far as a guideline for for who to assist and uh, looking at the nonprofits to help us find those groups of folks.
9: just to jump off what um, Pauline was just saying, I think, and also the mayor mentioned this kind of finding the the gaps. And so as we're looking at avoiding duplication, I think being cognizant of what other programs, what the availability of other programs and types of relief um, have occurred up until this point and, and making sure that we're just like we did with some of the um, individual relief funding that we did earlier in the pandemic, like trying to to target um, those members in our community and even organizations and entities in our community who kind of got left out in different ways, I think is an important guiding principle. Um, because with, as the mayor said, there will be more need than there are funds available. At the same time, I think everyone is it's going to be a difficult process to kind of get to that. How do we, how do we allocate and spend this money? I mean, I know, I'm sure nonprofits are, are having a similar kind of, I guess, struggle as, as we may find ourselves having in, you know, this is being just such a one-time thing. Some of it is hard to, to even imagine, um, what the distribution might look like. So I just think looking for gaps is important. Um, and as I see the, the this list of principles, all of them resonate with me as well. I think the racial uh, inequity and climate action are the two that kind of stand out as more sort of subject matter oriented. And I almost see them as, you know, everything else is as we're doing, you know, the, whatever we're doing, we're trying to, to achieve uh, or, or meet or be led by those principles. And then, um, you know, also just making sure that it's kind of like, I don't know, in my mind, I'm just sort of seeing layers of umbrellas of all these, these principles as well. So um, just prioritizing, I think those two with in accord with like lasting change due to the one time nature of this. I just think those are most important to me.
0: All right. Well, I think we have had a good discussion about these funds. It's good to know that we finally got the some rules to go with it um, because not having the rules is (laughs) we were kind of, you know, in the dark about what it could be used for. So it's helpful that we're at this point now. Any other questions for Rachel or any other comments?
1: Uh, Mayor, if I may, just in, in terms of next steps, we'll continue to reach out to the county uh, to the other uh, cities um, and, and gauge their temperature for, for collaborating uh, at least initially on some public input. And then we'll see if that evolves into larger collaborations with, with the funds. Um, in the meantime, I, I feel like we have enough out here to to at least open up the opportunity for folks to formally provide comment to the city. Um, clearly, you're getting some of that now, which is good, and informal contact is always encouraged. But I, I'd like staff um, to begin to put together some um basic education materials for the public, maybe short videos, uh, summaries of treasury guidance, and then and then a, a portal or a forum uh, survey of some type for, for them to uh, submit their thoughts. Um, I don't wanna get ahead of the county uh, collaboration if, if, if indeed that is in the cards, but we have enough to, to begin that process. And with your uh, go ahead, I think um, staff can, can uh, work on that in the, in the next week. How are you thinking about the, the people to have feedback to the city? Right? Yeah, I, I, I think it's gonna be multi-faceted um, to start, uh, or, or, or through this whole process. To start, I think we just need to get basic information on our, on our website and provide a, a basic survey or, or input opportunity. And then um, we'll have to become a little bit more nuanced uh, um, with uh, in-person engagement activities. Uh, perhaps in different locations. Those are the types of things I'm hoping that we can really do with the county uh, so that individuals that wanna provide that feedback don't have to go to two or three different meetings uh, to share that with their local elected officials. Um, So what I'm suggesting now is not a a comprehensive public input strategy. It's it's more of a start to get get the information out there um, uh, more than just what was presented at, at a city council meeting. Um, with the understanding that uh, probably where you're going with your comments, Mayor Pro Tem, is we're going to have to do more work to meet people in, in their locations at their times uh, um, in ways in which they feel comfortable providing that input.
3: Yeah, that's exactly what I want to say. Thank you. Uh, I don't know, but I think reaching out, people just go like do a listening post somewhere here and they are uh, – speak out to speak uh event or something like that anyway we we, we as a council need to, to reach out to people in their place during this now everybody has yeah. vaccinated uh probably i'm gonna have mine on friday maybe so we will uh you know just to start going out
5: yeah i think along that line it's also it's also going to be important to, um, to, to as we produce this information to push it out in particular to the whole. Uh, NGO or nonprofit community so that they also have that information when they come in contact with their various different um, clientele.
3: Yes, that's great.
4: Um, And Mayor Prodem, you mentioned the language barrier and, and translation. Hopefully, we'll be able to provide that where necessary. Sure, that's good.
0: All right. Well, great. Sound like we will be moving forward with that. We are on to the next item, which is clarif- clarification of agenda items. I did one. I did have one item I wanted to bring up, and that is our um, community comments. Um, we we've typically one, we value uh, the public comment. I think it really does provide an opportunity for us to hear from the public, get a sense of um, their perspective individually as individuals come to address us. And so we've had on like the public comment, um, we typically have like three to five minutes um, listed. And I wanted to you know, point out that oftentimes I, as the mayor and, and um, will look at how many hands are raised or how many people want to speak. And then I have to adjust it to ensure that we allow everybody as within our power an opportunity to speak. And so I've gone as low as two minutes uh, for individuals to speak. What I would like to propose is that we actually, um, you know, set it at three minutes. Um, the 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 public comment, um, and then if I need to, you know, adjust the time, then I won't go lower than two minutes because sometimes we do have a lot of people that want to give their um, um, their thoughts to council in a in a public meeting. Um, and so I, we certainly want to hear from the, you know, the people. So I just wanted to get a sense of council thoughts on uh, changing the community comment to three minutes. Um, now there are some things that we have to always allow um, that we have the public, you know, the open public hearing. We have to ensure that the public come and speak on that. That itself would also be three minutes. Um, so I wanted to make, or anything on the agenda, will be set at three minutes, and I would adjust um, to two minutes um, as necessary. Another thing to consider is when there is a when there is a, a a developer or you know someone's item on there, they may be granted more time.
3: So yeah, I just. That's what to, the problem, Meyer, uh, I really respect what you said, but. The problem is we have to it more time to some people. And I guess public comment is the only time the public can interact with us. Sometimes even we saw people needed more than five minutes. But I I hope if we can just leave it as it is, adjust it as needed. For example, leave it at five minutes as it is, it's been forever like this, nothing has been changed. And you know that sometimes we don't even have public comment, be one person or two. If we can leave it as that, but we have to put a policy. If there is a lot of people on the room, you need to adjust it to three minutes. Go ahead and adjust it to three minutes. But I really believe that sometimes we have a lot of people, sometimes we don't. And if we can give the developer five minutes to present themselves, I think our, our residents and public need that too. Yes, let us make it. Yeah, that's my, my own idea. I really encourage you to leave it at five minutes, but with a clear language that the mayor have the right to adjust the, you know, the, the time if it needed when a lot of people will be there. This is happening in the morning. People was very mad about it. We don't want to make our people mad too. You know, this is the only time we listen to the people. They waited two weeks and you know so we can they can talk to us and they uh, i guess like when there is a really hot issue people like to come in person and speak about it and they also they send emails and everything but they like to come so everybody can see them uh, bringing this issue
0: i think one of the questions um that I would, that I would have is you know we have the community we have the community comment and when we do have um, you know, we, we we will have an item on the agenda. Is there a certain amount of time that we would allot, or think that we would hear from the community on a on an agenda item? Um, should you know, is that thirty minutes? Is that because I think that's what it comes public, down to
3: for public comment? You mean? Yeah. For public hearing.
0: Um, I think. It, it could be for any any agenda item, like what is a, you know, I think we need to have some type of a time frame that, because I look at the hands and I kind of figure out where we are throughout the, you know, throughout the process. Certainly, we want to ensure that um, people are heard uh, when, the, when that agenda item comes up. But that is, you know, that is something that we have to consider as well.
3: I'm sorry, I really don't get you. Do you mean public comment after the consent agenda, or are you talking about public comment during an item on the agenda?
0: Um, I'm, I'm mixing up the two. We do know that we have, um, for the public comment time only, no agenda item. It ends at uh, 7 p.m., and then we can come back to it after. Yeah, so I guess this would really be related to the something that's on the agenda.
7: Oh, okay. if I can give you some perspective of 11 almost 11 and a half years on council my recollection is historically we did not allow five minutes I think it was typically three minutes I think if it's set at three minutes and people know it is three minutes I think that is ample time for somebody to come in front of council and give us their views on a particular item They are still more than welcome to call, to email, um, to get more information to us. But I think if people know ahead of time, three minutes is a fairly decent amount of time to, I believe, talk to us and express their views and also make sure that we can hear from as many people as possible. and And that way they know how much time they have. Historically, we I believe we have used that same three minutes in the community comment at the beginning of the meeting, which used to go to eight o'clock when we started at seven, but now goes till seven because we start at six. And we use that same three minutes typically for each agenda item um, if people wanted to speak on the agenda item. Mayors in the past would shorten that potentially to two minutes if we had a lot of people, and I don't know that we ever set a specific time limit on how long we took public comment. I know as a council, we always tried to let everyone speak, Um, but I think there were times where probably after an hour, hour and 30 Mm -hmm. minutes maybe, if it was a really, really hot topic um, that the mayor would finally you know, close it down. But when it's a really hot, contentious topic like that, it has always been the council's uh, purview to, or I shouldn't say that, it's always been the council's intent to try and listen and hear from as many members of the public as wanted to. And to do that, like I say, lots of times it has gone, say, from the three minutes down to the two. I'm very comfortable with that. I think if, if, the public has noticed that's what we're doing. We are not in any way diminishing their opportunity to communicate with us.
8: Yeah, I think it's um, on on agenda items, something where I, I, in my experience, I don't think we wanna limit the actual timeframe uh, where those comments could be heard. Um, the three minute rule, um, certainly makes sense, I think, for the community comment period. Um, I, I think, it you know, I've, I've seen comment on agenda items where it can be extended beyond that or where, you know, someone has something to say that goes beyond three minutes. Um, and it didn't seem out of place. I, I think one of the issues that comes up often with um, when you have many people coming to speak is that there will be uh, most likely repeat people will begin repeating one another in some ways. And so I think mayor, you could, you could say something to the effect of, you know, if, 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 if you're, what you had planned to say has already been said, perhaps you could just reference the fact that it had been said, uh, rather than repeating it so that we don't get that kind of duplication. Um, you know, that's one way of trying to, Keep the pace of the meeting uh, going at the right pace, uh, <clears throat> but yeah, a community comment. I, it seems three minutes is reasonable, um, and it's potentially reasonable on agenda items. But I think it really depends on the item and and um, you know what people have to say.
9: I think the the question of three versus five minutes is almost less important than just making clear what we're doing, Um, you know, and so so that people know what to expect uh, when they're heading into a meeting. I think it's very reasonable to say, you know, in the mayor's discretion, if there's a whole lot of people, particularly for the public um, community comment for items not on the agenda, you know, to to try and you know ratchet that down like to the two minutes just for the sake of of time and people know that they can reach out to us. If it's an item that's not on the agenda, there's not a risk of us, you know, taking some action that evening because we didn't hear, you know, a couple of minutes more of a particular comment. They can always reach out to us by email or or individually or come back at the next meeting. Um, So I'm I'm comfortable with that as long as we communicate it. Um, and, you know, just try and be consistent with it. I do think for public hearings, it should be more open. Um, I think, and I don't know if Sue would want to weigh in. I don't know if we have an obligation to to a certain uh, minimum, so to speak, on a public hearing. I think it is a different issue if it's for items that aren't on the agenda. And I think we we choose to allow comment on all items, even if it's not a public hearing. But I think if we're, again, being consistent and sort of governing the manner in which we do that.
6: I would not go less than two minutes on a public hearing. I think two minutes would be okay. And the only other thing I wanna just follow up a little bit on what the mayor said, historically, let's take a typical example of um, a zoning matter where you've got a developer and then maybe 10 neighbors in opposition, let's say. So if all the 10 neighbors get off five minutes and they have 50 minutes, the idea is that the developer probably shouldn't be limited to five minutes. That developer will get a little bit more. That's kind of the idea on when it's somebody's item, so to speak, to give them a little bit more time because there tends to be more time taken up in the quote unquote opposition. That That's just the reason historically that, Um, the typical example being a developer getting a little bit more time uh, because of that, just so the time adds up a little more even. We certainly could limit the developer to to two or three minutes too, but just from a historical standpoint, just FYI. Yeah. Yeah, we've
7: usually let the developers, you know, if they have a presentation, we've usually allowed them to give their presentation, and typically they have been within reason because usually we have staff doing a presentation first and then the developers will follow up with any additional points. But in 11 plus years, I don't recall too many times that we have felt that the developers were unreasonable in terms of going excessively long. But as council, we wanted to make sure we had all the information we needed about the project. And so we've allowed them and as Sue said, you know, we depending on the project, we may have had as much or a lot more time in opposition
5: potentially. I mean, it, it's not just it, it's, in addition to developers, there are other there are other people as well. I, we had the the issue with Rochester Avenue and the complete streets, and a group that came the a group of, of uh, residents that came in and did a PowerPoint pres- presentation. And I don't recall how long it lasted, but I'm sure it lasted more than three minutes, and it was very well put together and very informative. So. Um, I, I guess I, I would be comfortable with uh, as, the, as, the, as the three minutes for community comment and then what, what turns out to be necessary for agenda items, particularly particularly when there are public hearings, uh, because then the, those are specifically items that are specifically on the agenda for that evening in which we need to get full information.
0: I want to add one more thing. Oftentimes, when we've had um, uh, comments by people in the public, if they're aware that it's you know going to be three minutes, or even in the past when it was five minutes, what would happen is the public would coordinate um, individuals to come you know simultaneously to to give parts of the presentation. And so the council would have the full presentation. It would just be given by three people. So I, I know that there will still be ways for the public to um, give a holistic type of a presentation um, if they wanted to do it, you know, at the meeting. Also, um, as Councilor Burgess mentioned, certainly people can reach out to us individually as a council. Come back to another meeting. Um, it it does sound like. Um, even, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mayor Pro Tem, that the three minutes for the public comment, everybody agreed upon that, is that correct?
3: I, I'm not, but they are. Uh, I just wanna keep in mind that, uh, also I wanna tell you that sometime, uh, we don't have enough time for those people. Sometime you, you read a lot of proclamation there, it take a lot of time from the public, and we have only 15 or 20 minutes left and we divide that into three minutes, it's okay for me. But it's still, we have to keep in mind, if we use the most time of the public comment for reading some proclamation or we have something in the beginning, we have to keep in mind that we, we are not gonna end at 7 p.m. sometime. <laughs> you know? I, because how long we, ha- we give the public from our time, how long yeah. is this rem- ceremony, 45 minutes? You have to be
0: clear on that too. Yeah, I I, I hear what you're saying, and so, um, so when we have the the public comment, we go to 7 p.m. Yes. But if it doesn't if the public comment for whatever reason doesn't start to 7:45, let's say, I, I guess I would propose that we, you know, it, we have the until 7 p.m. But you know, 30 minutes. Minimum of thirty minutes, so I can adjust it, um, you know, to seven fifteen if need be, because we've had a lot of, you know, things on the uh, the front end of the agenda, and we had just experienced we had just experienced that not long ago.
3: Yeah, and and I don't think people should wait for us until we end our meeting so they can come and speak, and you know they have a lot of thing to do. They, they, it's, they don't have obligation to stay until the end of the agenda.
0: It's a rare occurrence where we don't have 30 minutes minimum, but would council be in agreement that um, I can, you know, maybe we'll have it so that it's very clear until 7 p.m., but minimum of 30 minutes. I'm seeing some heads shaking. Okay. Um, So we'll go with that. And then uh, I think it would be, because we wanna be clear. (laughs) I think it would be two to three minutes for the public comments so that people know what to expect.
7: I just think say three minutes. You have a maximum of three minutes.
0: Max of three minutes, okay. That makes, yeah, maximum of three minutes. Um, And then there is no, we don't have listed uh, on agenda items um, you know, anything related to, you know, the public comment time. So um, again, that'll be at the mayor's discretion as it has been in the past, where it will be adjusted. So I'm comfortable with the um, with the two to three minutes there. Of course, if um, if you know, if there's a developer or someone who has that agenda item, Oftentimes we know when they're gonna be present to speak as well. Um, and so we can have a um, conversation with them beforehand, especially if they have a presentation or they need you know, to present a PowerPoint. All right, any other thing on this item?
1: Mayor, I think with your, your permission, um, we can add some language to the agenda. Right now the agenda, doesn't provide any details on the community comment portion. It just, it's, it's lacking of those details. So, um, it, with your permission, we'll just take what you've discussed here and put that actually into the written agenda for every meeting going forward. Is that okay?
0: Yes, please. And I'm yep, some, not another hits. Thank yeah. you. I think
4: that's a good idea, Jeff. And, and also I think, uh, Maybe once we get to in-person meetings, that's going to happen sometime soon, I hope, where there'll be a better idea of how many speakers. Because right now, uh, I think you maybe are the only one and maybe Kelly to see the number of hands that are up. Uh, So if people know that there's still 20 people out there in the room, like uh, former mayor, when we were in person, you see the people lining up, you know there's 20 people. So uh, you know that it's gonna be probably three minutes or maybe even the two minutes. So I think that that could change it. change the picture a little bit, but, but I'm, I'm okay with the three minutes max.
0: And, and the, and the reason I've been just um, stayed in how many hands are raised so that, you know, people all know how many hands are raised. Um, I'm happy that I actually found that there's a number at the top and I was going down counting. So now I know that I could just look at the number and, and quickly say how many uh, people I have their hand raised and I kind of wait and pause until I have all the hands raised and kind of make um, a statement that I, you know, see these many hands at this point. So I think that it helped for um, better, one, just better articulating how many people want to speak uh, during that time and where I am making the decision to, um, you know, allow two to three minutes. Um
3: it doesn't matter now because I think so. also some people will raise their hand after the fact. Mm-hmm. So I, I know that maybe after you go 30 minutes and or after seven o'clock and you make sure you did the thirty minutes, as long as some people inside that time frame, they can still even if they raise their hand late, they can still speak because we're still on that time frame.
0: Absolutely. That's
3: what I really want to see. And also, as bully mentioned, if we went back to in person later uh you know i I really wanna again to remind you if we can if if and see if the staff is really working on uh bringing like a timer just like the school district they had in their meeting that's really clear that's really good, so the person will know it become red uh when it's like a few seconds and they know they have to stop and you know this way. We don't have to count. We can just listen to them.
0: Sure. And I, I'll work with staff, and we may, um, you know, institute what we can even uh, quickly virtually.
3: Yeah, that's we have it in too. Yeah, we can have a timer virtually. I saw it somewhere.
0: Yep. So, um, I'll work with uh, Kelly on that. All right. Any other item um, from the formal agenda? okay we're going to move on to info packet from may 6th info packet from may 13th Council updates on assigned boards, commissions, and committee.
2: Um,
5: the CPRB had its, had its forum last evening, lasted about an hour and a half, fielded a lot of questions from the public and, and Chief Liston also personally fielded a lot of questions. I just, I thought it was a very productive um, and helpful forum to have.
4: Uh,
9: just from the unesco city of literature it is actually in our info packet of may 13th ip5 is the annual report which i hope everyone will take a look at
0: great all right well if nothing more we will be back at 6 p.m and we want to wish mayor pro tem a happy birthday <laughs> and we will see everybody back at 6 PM.
3: Yeah. Thanks.
0: Great. Bye.